You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Damien Bradfield, co-founder and chief creative officer of WeTransfer. In our conversation, we discuss the brand's work with artists and creatives, as well as its current research, the Ideas Report and the Emerging Creative Hubs Index, that shines a light on trends driving the creator economy. Also joining me is Emily Gordon-Smith, Stylus's Content Director and Sustainability Lead, for The Download, the section of future thinking where Stylus experts unpick the key cultural, business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. On this episode, we'll be exploring the key looks and trends from this autumn's runway shows. But now let's hear from Damien Bradfield. What are you looking for when you want to work with with artists and creatives then uh, and showcase them on the the WeTransfer platform? Talk to me a little bit about the methodology behind your your commissions. Increasingly, we're trying to cross this spectrum of stuff that's really interesting to young creators. And we see a ton of traction in, well, from the Ideas Report, for example, where we're diving into surveying 10,000 people to find out, you know, what's what's happening in their lives, what's getting stuck, where can we help, or the issues of being a young creator. And some of the work that we've been doing as a result of that are projects like Stuff They Don't Tell You, which is really getting into the, like, the nuts and bolts of the industry. Maybe some of the more boring stuff, but the stuff that's really important to you as a young, a young creator. How do you get paid? How do you, you know, make sure that your IP is protected? All those sort of very practical stuff. And then right at the other end of the spectrum, we're doing amazing work with people like Marina Abramovich and FK Twiggs and Russell Tovey and really trying to, to be you know, the sort of guiding light or the sort of thought leadership stuff that I hope is an inspiration to, to young creators so that they have something to look forward to, but they also get some of the nuts and bolts as to how they actually need to do the work on a day-to-day basis. So you mentioned the ideas report there. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. What is it? How does it? How did it came, come to be? And what sort of insights did you did you get? From- so the ideas report we use the the ad inventory on WeTransfer for many different reasons or for many different projects. And one of them was if we were to put out a survey, which we used to do quite a lot of. You know, what are you? What's going on? What are you interested in? We. We're really just trying to dive into that user base that we have to find out who our community was and you know what what was exciting for them, but also what was a struggle. And the ideas report really came from that was just reaching out to about ten thousand people that would complete a survey, telling us what was happening in the industry, what was exciting, where they were struggling, and particularly, you know, the tonality of it has changed over the last couple of years that we've been doing it. Obviously, because of the pandemic, and obviously as the creative space has just changed, right? It's evolved a lot. When I first started out and we didn't talk about money i mean we, we if you're in even in advertising you aspired to be an artist you didn't really want to talk about money but i think you know today it's it's much more commonplace to to be willing and able to talk about you know getting paid how much is something worth if i'm selling something how do i make sure i've got more users more subscribers you know audience is everything so how do you reach them how do you engage with them and increasingly from when the difference between when we started out and today is in 2009 you could reach an audience without spending a single dollar on Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else. But really today, as we all know, to engage with an audience and to build one, you've got to pay. And those sort of insights, you know, we're getting back tenfold from the ideas report where people will go into the struggles and the issues and questions around workplace. You know, what is the future of the office? How often are people going in? What do they want to do? What are they expecting for from a relationship with their employer? What are they looking for in return? Does everyone want to work four days a week or is that a myth? You know, you know, those sort of things. And of course, some of the 
bigger mental health topics too around burnout and stress and the hustle culture that's been so well talked about and is so attractive but in reality it's pretty brutal in terms of sort of creative and aesthetic or artistic trends you're in an incredible position to sort of see how art and design and media has been evolving as you sort of work to, to, to partner with creatives. I wonder if, if you would be able to talk a little bit about what, what trends you've been seeing emerging over the past 12 months in terms of, you know, whether things are getting more or less political, more or less dependent on new technologies like AI, for example. Are there any trends that you, you are particularly excited by in that respect? I mean, collaging is king. I don't know that we've ever seen more collaging happening in the world. That so that seems to be a massive trend right now. What I do think is quite nice is that there's the the entry level to me appears to have, have reduced. So I think there's much more willingness to accept somebody who you know perhaps hasn't studied fine art and gone through all the different stages of an art career before they would be accepted as an artist. There's much more willingness to accept young, perhaps more raw artwork than might previously have been accepted. You know, that being said, I think the complexity is always getting the work seen. So there are so many young creators out there. There are so many people that have got incredible talent. The, the challenge remains in, in making sure that it's seen. And what I personally would like to see more of is more of the tastemakers, more of the curators that are helping guide people through what is good work, not just a company that's got a vested interest in selling more shit telling you what it is that's good work, but really somebody who's been in the business a long time and and has seen some of these trends come and go. I think we're going to see more curation and more tastemakers come through because the volume of work has just gone through the roof. I think it's becoming such a problem for people to be able to actually find you know new music or new work or whatever else. If I take the music industry, I think there's something fascinating happening right now where there has never been more old music listened to than ever before. It used to be that when I was... I'm a satisfaction old man. But when I was a boy, what we used to do is go out and spend pretty much half of the pocket money we were given on music, and it would all be new music, and we'd you know, come back and play this new stuff, and there's no way I was listening to Neil Diamond. Today, the teenage community, which was previously the community that drove new music, that was you know pushing for news, is listening to old music. And on Spotify, 70% nearly of the music plays is music coming from the zeros, 90s, and 80s. I don't know if it's terrifying or it's amazing. To some point, it's quite terrifying because what's going to happen to the new music? Where does that go? And why aren't people listening to it? Why they're not excited by it? On the other hand, I think it's quite cool that, you know, teenage kids today are able to engage and perhaps form deeper relationships with their parents because they're able to associate and share those sort of interests together more. One thing I want to talk about as well is the Emerging Creative Hubs Index, which is a, a really fascinating project. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about what, what that's all about. So again, driven by the pandemic, what we were seeing was people perhaps being given the chance for the first time ever to consider where they wanted to live, as opposed to it being dictated that you had a job in New York, you have to live in New York, and then you know the cost of living and the commute and everything else, perhaps it works for you, perhaps it takes its toll. And what we were seeing was that you know, there were a lot of places that people wanted to be, but, but previously couldn't. There were places where people would go and get inspiration and where they felt that they could have a better quality of life, but previously weren't able to, to relocate or you know, companies weren't accepting of it. And during COVID, that, that pretty much changed. So the index was basically trying to work out in the States, you know, if you were going to consider it, where would you go? If you're, going to, if you're in the creative industry, 
where are the places that you could consider that perhaps you hadn't previously or perhaps were offering something those conditions for creativity that would be really appealing to you. So we we basically did this study. We narrowed it down to five or six different cities in the States and then went down, broke it down into talking to those local communities, you know, different creators, creating maps so that people could find out where they could go and work, co-working spaces, coffee shops, all that sort of stuff. And then sort of trying to create an index that would allow people to to explore that themselves. Some of the cities, were you surprised by some of the choices? Because, I mean, if we go through the list, so there's Atlanta, Madison, Norfolk, Virginia, Norfolk, Boston. Yeah. I mean, Honolulu. I mean, yes, why, who wouldn't want to work in? Yeah. But, um, but then you have Salt Lake City, for example, which I was quite surprised by. Did you, did you have any insight into, into what, uh, what was driving these choices? I mean, so you've got to look at the city and then you've got to look at the surroundings. So, it's, you know, Salt Lake perhaps wouldn't be top of your list, but the, by... By moving to Salt Lake, you've got to look at you know, cost of living, cost of accommodation, you know, access to infrastructure, and then the surroundings. I mean, and Salt Lake is pretty well positioned in terms of you know, giving you access to mountains and skiing and outdoor life. Many things for a lot of people in New York that are completely you know, out, out of bounds. So no, Salt Lake didn't, didn't necessarily surprise me. Like Virginia is more of a surprise. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have put Virginia up there at the top of the list. But again, you know, you've got to look at benchmarking, cost of living and tax, those things we don't really have, you know, such great disparity with within within Europe. You could obviously go and live in Portugal and it's an awful lot cheaper and better tax than it is to live in Holland. The, I think the disparity isn't as the same as it is in the US and something that you really can't underestimate in the United States is safety for young creators that are thinking perhaps of the next level and where they can show their work and where they can where they can live and potentially raise a family. You know, there are many places in the US that are certainly not on that list at all for something that we again wouldn't have to consider in Europe being safety. More from Damien in a moment. Now the download, where I'm joined by my stylist colleagues to unpick the key cultural business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. Here's Emily Gordon-Smith, Stylus's Content Director and Sustainability Lead and all-round fashion guru, to talk about key trends from this autumn's runway shows. One thing to note, in this discussion, we talk about Kanye West. This conversation was recorded before he made the offensive comments that have led to Balenciaga and other brand partners dropping him. What we saw was that it was potentially the first season since the pandemic where it really felt like we were getting a return to all of the theatrics and the surrounding circus, as I like to call it. And in addition, there is a lot going on in terms of optimism, but... I guess to start with the kind of theatrics, mm. there was some really interesting things going on, actually, particularly in Paris. So one rather fun thing that I could tell you about was the brand Caperni, who sent Bella Hadid out basically nearly naked. And then she was joined by a scientist friend of the designers on the stage who sprayed her body with what looked like kind of silly string or fake snow or something and went from being a liquid into a solid which was then played around with by a designer and turned into a proper dress. So literally sprayed on her on the stage, which was rather fun. And it, it reminded me of probably one of the most theatrical moments on the runways ever, which was the Alexander McQueen spring-summer 99 show where Shalom Harlow stood on a, on a spinning platform and was sprayed by, by robots. And then... I guess as well in terms of theatrics and the and the circus that surrounds the shows, two slightly darker things that obviously have to be mentioned when we're talking about this season's runways. One would be the Yeezy 
show and Kanye deciding that it was a good idea to send out White Lives Matter t-shirts, which quite astonishing, really. And then picking a fight with the black Vogue fashion editor, Gabby Karifa Johnson. She described the show as deeply offensive, violent and dangerous. I think really the, there's a whole thing around the nature of the power of celebrity in the industry, which I think is starting to become mm. unpicked. Um, you think it's damaging for the industry? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, what what was that all about? It just doesn't make any sense. And the collection was quite shockingly terrible in its entirety anyway. And then I guess another one, and Kanye was the, the first to walk out on this collection. He was the, the number one outing, was the Balenci Balenciaga show, which was this deeply kind of post-apocalyptic scene with foot feet mud apparently an a scent was sprayed around the around the runway that smelt effectively just of things decomposing apparently even the sound i wasn't there but apparently even the, the soundtrack was terrifying and yeah there's all of this is really quite kind of dark stuff and and, and the actual clothing and the makeup had a very kind of war-torn effect to it so I think some of the kind of theatrics are really quite have been quite fun and playful and then other aspects have been really quite sinister but potentially I guess as ever mirroring the kind of world that we live in but on, on the upside what was really exciting is that the runways in actual fact were full of very optimistic messages that was the kind of mainstay and that's what's going to play out in terms of how people are dressing. Right. What kind of optimistic messages are we talking about here? So everything from the colour, there was just an abundance of really super positive, bold colour, lots of neons, really super bright shades, quite joyous pastels, lots and lots of white and silver. And I think, um, yeah, the, the way that fabric as well was being used and print and pattern really supported this very optimistic, that was really the kind of core across all four cities, was this really optimistic colour palette. And when it came to fabrics to support that, there was lots and lots of evening fabrics being used for day. So lots of playing with fabrics and really turning fabric use on its head, which was quite interesting. So things like satin, sequins, shears, lots of decorative fabrics. And so, yeah, I think that what, it, what it's doing is it's shifting that emphasis away from the very practical fabrics where the emphasis has been for the past number of years into something much more kind of playful. And the same with print and pattern. There was tons and tons of really bold print and pattern coming through which supported that and then I guess in terms of key looks there was still this huge focus on nostalgia and particularly for kind of quite youthful looks so the 90s and noughties still resonating absolutely massively with designers that just doesn't seem to be going away so that was very much a key trend but a couple of other key trends that are worth calling out one was around I think we, we really saw a big return of sports in fashion and that might sound ridiculous because you kind of think well sports is never, doesn't go out of fashion because that's all we wear but I mean sports in terms of really inf influencing true fashion apparel or, or vice versa and we haven't seen that for quite some time it's all been very performance based or very comfort based and so we are seeing that there's this really nice meeting between sports and fashion in a, in a space that is obviously super commercial because people want to, you know, they do want to embrace fashion, but also mm. they want that, you know, sports is the sportswear is just absolutely huge. That was really interesting and is obviously really, really super commercial. We've obviously had 
a bit of a break, I guess, during COVID. Is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, th there have been shows throughout the whole period, but in, in periods of lockdown, you know, really, really kind of diminished schedules or kind of zero schedules, shifting to lookbooks, mm -hmm. so just photography. So, yes, I think that's where it's probably taken this past year for the schedule to get ramped back up. You think that that will sort of continue, that there, there aren't any sort of lessons from the COVID years that have been taken on board in terms of, I don't know, maybe making things more sustainable? We are seeing amongst many young designers that they are really committed to doing things like using dead stock fabrics and upcycling and that being very prevalent in their whole look and identity but we're not seeing enough of it at luxury level we're still seeing definitely in many collections you can see that they're all made from virgin materials they're still using leather they're still using plastics potentially even fur and that has got to shift and there needs to be much more emphasis on sustainable fashion itself at that level when it comes to the the kind of spectacle and the the whole kind of circus of the runways and the the unsustainability of that it feels like no as in so many different ways with fashion we haven't taken that opportunity to step back and to think this is time to really change and do things better and, and differently. We've seen some experiments, haven't we, over the past couple of years with events, similar sort of events in the metaverse and in digital environments. And that felt for a while like that was going to go some interesting places. Is, yeah. that, is that going anywhere? Not really. I mean, which is <laughs> not really. I guess in terms of the aesthetics, it's, you know, it's taking a very long time for this whole thing to really ramp up to something that mm. looks truly enticing. So the experimentation is all very interesting, but we certainly didn't see the, yeah, I mean, we, you know, during lockdowns, I think we were all terribly excited that post-lockdown it was all going to be about just digital fashion shows and it was going to all going to look fabulous and yeah it's it's just it's happening so slowly that it's not a viable alternative now let's return to the final part of my interview with damien bradfield from we transfer you've grown so incredibly in the past decade and the work that you've been doing and supporting is, is so incredible what are Thanks. the what are the next big plans for the platform and your work with creatives as I said earlier on, I think the, the creator and their needs and their, their raison d'etre is changing. It's different than what it was 20 years ago. And I think for us, we need to make sure that we change and evolve you know, along with those creators that we've always supported. But I think if you were to ask people, you know, does we transfer play in the creative economy? They'd probably say, no, we don't. But you know, the reality is we've been very much in that space for a long time. We perhaps just haven't offered, you know, or made it visible of all the tools and services and, and features that we have that can really help, I think, a creator be more effective and to, to learn more, to do more. And something that we would, you know, love to see further coming out of ideas reports or these hub projects or whatever else that we're doing is to really understand what it is that, you know, motivates a, a young creator today so that we can try and package that up and, and give it back to them as a, as a value add. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at WeAreStylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. 
If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.